Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> Seven years ago, when in the course of human events, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America, and a white America, and Latino America, and Asian America. There's the United States of America. My name is Corey Bretschneider, professor of political science at Brown University. I also am a visiting professor at Fordham Law School where I teach constitutional law, and I'm recording this from my home in New York City. The Pennsylvania Gazette, 24th of October, 1787. On the safety of the people from the restraints imposed upon the Senate. We have seen that the late honorable convention in designating the nature of the chief executive office of the United States has deprived it of all the dangerous appendages of royalty and provided for the frequent expiration of its limited powers. As our president bears no resemblance to a king, so we shall see the Senate have no similitude to nobles. First, then, not being hereditary, their collective knowledge, wisdom, and virtue are not precarious, for by these qualities alone they are able to obtain their offices, and they will have none of the peculiar follies and vices of those men who possess power merely because their fathers held it before them. In the summer of 1787, there was a feeling that the Articles of the Confederation had really given way too little power to the federal government. And an initial thought was that there needed to be a convention in Philadelphia to fix the Articles of Confederation, and delegates were sent. And quickly that plan was scrapped, and the decision was made, no, actually, we're going to write a new constitution that gives much more power to the federal government than the Articles of Confederation, which were extremely weak, were able to do. What happens in that convention is that a new framework for government is set up, Article 1, creating a new Congress, Article 2, the office of the presidency, which certainly didn't exist before, and Article 3, the judiciary. And within those grants of power, the balances have to be struck between them. And as importantly, very importantly for our purposes, a limit has to be placed on each of these branches and for our purposes, most importantly, on the president of the United States. 
And that limit in the form of impeachment and removal is going to come through the Constitution's text. The power is going to be given, the sole power to impeach is going to be given through Article 1 to the House of Representatives. And Article 1 is also going to give the sole power to try and remove a president to the Senate. The Chief Justice, who under Article 3 leads the Supreme Court, is actually going to play a role here. He's going to leave his or her branch of government and go to the Senate and preside over a Senate trial. Senators, how say you? Is the respondent guilty or not guilty? There's a debate in Philadelphia during the um, Constitutional Convention about the powers of a president and the limits, and specifically a fundamental question comes up, which is, what do we do when a president has abused the office, abused power in such a way that we no longer want him or her to continue to govern? And one thought at the time was, well, we have this fundamental check, and that's called elections. Every four years, we can replace a president. But for many, that wasn't enough. There were some members of that convention who worried about presidential power becoming too extreme, the president becoming a monarch. And so the fundamental check that was put in was a legal way to remove a president. Of course, if you opposed the king and tried to depose of the king, that was treasonous. And uh, the only way to do that was to kill the king. Uh, I guess there was at one point uh, a system of British impeachments, but they were mostly in course uh, to do with public officials, not the king himself. Now, how were they going to do it? There were two parts to impeachment originally proposed, and that was treason and bribery. And then the thought was we need a broader understanding of the kind of crimes that might come up, the kind of height, well, well, we'll get to that, the kind of abuses of power, I should say, that could come up. And one proposal that was voted on was that it would be high crimes and maladministration. And that was meant to be a very broad category. And the objection was it's too broad. I mean, we're going to depose of a president who, for instance, has bad policies that we don't agree with. It seemed to set up something more like a no confidence vote, I think, the way I would describe it. And maladministration was seen as too broad. And yet treason and bribery were too specific. And there were kinds of abuses of power that were thought that could a president could engage in that would be so serious that we couldn't wait until the election, that we'd have to depose of him or her legally before that. And so this third phrase comes up, high crimes and misdemeanors. And that's a phrase taken from British parliamentary procedure. As I said, the British parliament involved the law of offices. You could lose your office for uh, not just any kind of bad behavior, but for a kind of serious breach of duty. And that was meant to convey this sort of serious breach of duty, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. If you look in a criminal law casebook, there's not a category of the American criminal law called high crimes. Instead, this was meant to convey this broader idea of an abuse of power. And so in the Federalist Papers, we see, for instance, Hamilton discuss this idea that an abuse of the public trust is what they were getting at, that this broader phrase was meant to say, okay, there are specific worries about treason and bribery, but beyond that, if the president damages democracy in some way, then we've got this third category that we can use. The powers of the Senate continued from the New York packet, March 7th, 1788, Alexander Hamilton, to the people of the state of New York. The remaining powers which the plan of the convention allots to the Senate in a distinct capacity are comprised in their participation with the executive in the appointment to offices and in their judicial character as a court for the trial of impeachments. As in the business of appointments, the executive will be the principal agent The provisions relating to it will most properly be discussed in the examination of that department. We will, therefore, conclude this head with a view of the judicial character of the Senate. 
A well-constituted court for the trial of impeachments is an object not more to be desired than difficult to be obtained in a government wholly elective. The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may be, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. The prosecution of them, for this reason, will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community and to divide it into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. In many cases, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other. And in such cases, there will always be the greatest danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. The convention, it appears, thought the Senate the most fit depository of this important trust. Those who can best discern the intrinsic difficulty of the thing will be the least hasty in condemning that opinion and will be most inclined to allow due weight to the arguments which may be supposed to have produced it. To understand impeachment, we've really got to go back to the summer uh, of 1787 when the Constitution was being drafted. And one of those days, July 20th, a lot of debate is focused on the question of impeachment itself and what this power will involve. And there are, of course, two issues, I think, that we have to just begin with. One is, how is this going to work? What's the process of impeachment and removal going to be? This is a big deal. And the second is about the standard. What kind of instance, what kind of action can a president take that would be so serious that he or she should be removed from office? So I'll begin with just the the first point. Um, If you look in the Constitution, it's the House of Representatives in Article 1, which creates the Congress, is given the power of impeachment. And the Senate is given the power to try all impeachments. I'll just read to you that paragraph. Uh, The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. And then it goes on, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, and disqualification to enjoy any office of honor. So when we combine that language, it's not a huge amount. We see that basically a majority of the House of Representatives impeaches a president. That's the first part of the process. And then the process moves to the House. And the word try is used. There's a trial in the Senate. But the Senate has the sole power to conduct this trial. So it's very different from the normal instance of a judicial trial where a criminal trial, for instance. And the language is clear, too, that we're not talking about putting somebody in jail. We're talking instead about removing a president or judge from office and disqualifying them, possibly, too, for any future office uh, from coming back and being reelected, for instance. And over time, uh, it's clear that the removal requires two thirds, but the question of disqualification that in cases of judicial impeachments, for instance, the Senate has taken a second vote, a majority vote uh, for that process and at times uh, disqualified 
judges. Now, in the case of presidential impeachment, if we were to get a two-thirds majority, that would result in immediate removal, and then a second vote would happen should the president be disqualified from running again. The chief justice of the United States presides. Now, that's a little confusing because the chief justice, of course, is the head of the judicial branch over cases involving uh, courts, the sort of top rung of our courts and cases of judicial review, considering whether or not legislation is constitutional or not. But here, the chief justice has more of a sort of ceremonial role. I think he or she is there in order to convey the seriousness of the proceedings. But the fact that it's the Senate that has the sole power to conduct the trial really means that the chief justice, although he or she is the presiding officer, can be overridden by a majority of the Senate, that this is going to be run by Senate rules. So the process is majority in the House, two-thirds in the Senate for removal, and then a second vote, 50% for disqualification. Now, if we move on to the second question of high crimes and misdemeanors, we need to move away from Article One of the Constitution, which creates the Congress and gives the Congress certain powers and duties, including this power of impeachment and removal. We've talked about the question of how we impeach and remove a president and the process that the Constitution outlines in its text. But now we've got to really address another question. Article One defines that process of how the House impeaches and the Congress convicts and removes a president and then potentially after that even disqualifies a president. But if we move to Article Two, we see the Constitution standard, what the House and Senate are supposed to be discussing when they talk about impeachment and removal. And it's not just any kind of bad policy. It's certainly not just I disagree with the president's policies or um, his politics or her politics. Instead, what Section 4 of Article 2 says is the president, vice president, and civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, we've got to figure out what that phrase means uh, and what's supposed to be happening here. And the first confusion, I think, that we've got to clear up, even though it's the Senate that's going to conduct this trial and the House that's going to conduct the impeachment, it sounds like we're in the realm of criminal law that a high crime and misdemeanor sounds like a a serious crime, a violation of the criminal statutes. But let's remember that this is drafted as part of a convention in 1787 in Philadelphia, when the entire framework for the United States government is being created. So there is no United States code, no set of criminal statutes at the time. They're referring instead to something else. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, if you were to look through a criminal law casebook, for instance, you wouldn't find a category or a section of a class that was about that topic. And that's because it really isn't talking about crime crimes, about violations of criminal statutes as they now exist. Instead, what the framers were trying to get at uh, was something that wasn't so narrow that it was defined as a specific crime like treason and bribery, which certainly are and were, um, were considered crimes, but something broader than that, that were high crimes and misdemeanors was meant to refer to a kind of abuse of power. At one point in the convention, there's a discussion, should we use the term maladministration? And that was thought to be too broad. That sounded more like open to the kind of partisan bickering and politics that was really about that you thought the president wasn't doing a good job, wasn't efficient or something, doing his or her duty. And so high crimes and misdemeanors is supposed to suggest something that's narrower than the broader idea of maladministration, but broader than any criminal statute defines. 
There were uh, common law understandings of crimes, uh, common law being defined by judges at the time rather than by criminal statutes. There's some argument by some scholars that this was a kind of abuse of power was a common law criminal offense. But to me, the way to understand what they were doing is to look to the Federalist Papers and to look at Alexander Hamilton. And he talked about high crimes and misdemeanors as abuses of the public trust, as a sort of violation of the need for any president to protect and respect our democracy. And high crimes and misdemeanors was meant to convey something, of course, narrower than just the average instance of a president doing something bad that people disagreed with. Every president would be subject to impeachment if that was the case. And instead, this idea of public trust was meant to suggest a president that really threatened the republic itself, threatened the democracy. And notice the language, right? It's not just that they can do this. It's that they shall. The president, vice president and civil officers of the United States shall be removed if they threaten our democracy. So when we put that together, we've got this power that's not really reviewable by courts. And in a case called Nixon versus the United States, the Supreme Court of the United States has said, look, this isn't the realm of courts. The fact that it's a sole uh, power to try means that we hand this over to the Senate to make the decision here of how to conduct this trial. And the other thing that the House and the Senate have to do is to interpret whether or not high crimes and misdemeanors have been committed or treason and bribery. And what we can do is give them a guide here to say, you know, it's not a crime crime. It's not a violation of a statute. You're not supposed to conduct this like a criminal trial would be. Instead, you're supposed to really ask, did the president do something that really imperiled the democracy as a whole? I think, as usually was the case with the framers, there were worries on both sides. There was a worry that if the impeachment power was too strong, that the president could be subject to removal for partisan reasons and could be basically kept from serving effectively as commander in chief, from executing the laws, from doing everything that the presidency was set up to do. And I think it's pretty clear the framers did not want a no-confidence vote. In the British system, as our listeners know, the House of Commons can vote to basically end the government, end the prime minister's rule, and reconvene the, the populace for a vote. And that really wasn't what the framers wanted. And so when the phrase maladministration was suggested as a framework for impeachment, that was rejected as basically weakening the presidency in too extreme a way. But on the other hand, if it was left just as treason and bribery, the standard of impeachment, I think the thought was, you know, that's going to be too weak, that we could have a president who's really imperiling our democracy in a way that is neither treason or bribery, and yet is so serious that if we don't remove him or her, uh, the whole system could collapse. The framers knew they were creating a very powerful office, very different from any office that existed under the Articles of Confederation. There was nothing like that. And yet they didn't want an absolute monarch. They wanted the president to be limited, and not just by elections. They wanted to have a process that didn't require revolution, that didn't require violence, a legal process where a president who abused power, who violated the public trust in Hamilton's view, could be removed. And that's why this sort of compromise view of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors is, is used. The usual process for impeachment and removal involves committees. That's the first step. Now, we need to know what's going on, what the president has done if he or she is accused of a high crime and misdemeanor. And the Judiciary Committee, for instance, can do an investigation. During Watergate, there were also simultaneous Senate committees uh, that were investigating wrongdoing by the president. And as those committees did their work, I think the thought was that even though the Senate wasn't going to begin the process, it had to begin in the House, the uh, truth would come to light of possible high crimes and misdemeanors. The Rules Committee will come to order. 
We've listened to the hearings. We've read the transcripts. And it's clear that this president acted in a way that not only violates the public trust, he jeopardized our national security. And he undermined our democracy. He acted in a way that rises to the level of impeachment. We've outlined the Constitution's requirements for the House and the Senate to impeach and remove a president, and we've outlined high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors and what that means. But practically, there are other elements of this process that will happen. And to my mind, the most important is the committee process, that because we're not having judicial trials here, evidence still has to be gathered. And the way that that usually will happen, it's not specified, but the, the sole power to impeach and to try a president has meant that the Senate and the Congress, in cases of impeachment, have convened committees that have had witnesses, tried to do fact gathering, and those committees then, the process is, make a recommendation to the full House of Representatives, then the full House of Representatives will vote, and then the articles will be transmitted under the current rules to the Senate, and the Senate will convene itself into a new body. Remember from the Constitution that the Senate is now engaging in a kind of trial, and it's not a normal business as usual in the Senate. The Chief Justice being there symbolizes that. And the Senate sets its own rules for this trial, and under the current rules, which have been in place really since the 19th century, since the Johnson trial, the senators have to take an oath. And what that oath says, it's required in the Constitution that they take some oath, but what it specifies in the rules is that they're going to take an oath of impartiality, that they're going to transform themselves into a new body from political beings to really, in a sense, jurors who are going to think about this question of whether or not the president or the official before them has committed a high crime or treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Senators, I attend the Senate in conformity with your notice for the purpose of joining with you for the trial of the President of the United States. I am now prepared to take the oath. Will you place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and the laws so help you God. I do. At this time, I will administer the oath to all senators in the chamber in conformance with Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution and the Senate's impeachment rules. Will all senators now stand or remain standing uh, and raise their right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. The clerk will call the names in groups of four, and senators will present themselves at the desk to sign the oath book. It's right to say that the framers imagined the Senate to be really the least political in the raw sense of the branches. They thought of the House of Representatives as directly dependent on and, and responsive to really the whims of the people. It was the most democratic branch in the raw sense of democracy. 
Alexander Hamilton, author of Federalist No. 65. Those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or, in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, they are of a nature which may with peculiar propriety be denominated political, as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. And the Senate was meant to be more deliberative. They didn't really think about political parties in the sense that we have them now. They talked about faction and worried about faction. But I think they knew that in the normal course of things, that even the Senate, this deliberative body, was going to engage in a kind of raw form of politics, of course. They were going to care about interests. They were going to fight over resources. But they wanted to convey that impeachment, I think this is the point of suggesting a new oath has to be taken, that there was a kind of higher politics, a higher duty that had to really replace even their already high standard of deliberation. Now, by the time the rules are drafted that specify an oath of impartiality, I think there's a realization that, look, this thing is definitely partisan. The both branches, both the Congress and the House of Representatives are, you know, partisan institutions. The parties existed by then. Uh, but they still wanted to get back to that founding idea of deliberation. And so they specify, as they required, they needed some oath. They specify this new oath of impartiality to really say, look, your duty here is very different from your day-to-day duty as a senator. And it's to judge a very specific thing. Did the president or vice president or another civil officer of the United States, did they commit treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors? Yes or no? That's a factual inquiry to the extent that you're thinking about values. It's the values outlined in the Constitution, the values about protecting this democracy. And they were trying to convey with that oath, I think, this solemn sense of responsibility. We should note that although, you know, the focus of the American people is most high when we're talking about presidential impeachment, and we'll talk, of course, about those presidential impeachments, As I uh, read Section 4, it should be clear, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. We're not just talking about presidential impeachment. This power is much broader. The vice president certainly can be impeached, and so could cabinet members, uh, advisors to the president. And so could, very importantly, justices, federal justices, and even Supreme Court justices. And in fact, many of the precedents when we talk about impeachment come from judicial impeachments. When we think of a very early famous case of impeachment, one that really set the limits in many ways, the impeachment of the Supreme Court Justice uh, Samuel Chase comes to mind. In March of uh, 1804, during the administration of Thomas Jefferson, the House votes to impeach Chase. And about a year later, the Senate uh, quits him. And for defenders of Chase, that was a good thing because they worried that this was a partisan impeachment, that Jefferson and Democratic Republicans, now we're in the era certainly of partisan of political parties, they didn't like him because he was a member of a different party, I guess would be the blunt way to put it. And they see that impeachment as being overly partisan. The other side of it, I think, is, you know, that he did some bad stuff. He lobbied for and really helped to pass the Alien Sedition Acts, making it a crime to really criticize the President of the United States. To my mind, I I think that we've got to balance the worry about partisan impeachment with the recognition that there was a reason why people were angry at him. It wasn't just that he he had done anything. He had had in the minds of 
people at the time worked to really undermine our democracy, undermine the protection of free speech that was enshrined in the in the First Amendment. And he not only lobbied for those acts, kind of undermining his role as a judge, but he actually made a point of insisting on presiding over one of the trials in which there was an indictment for violating the Alien Sedition Acts. And he was so pro-Adam, so pro-Federalist uh, as a judge, the worry was that, that he lacked the independence that, that he should have had as a Supreme Court Justice. The Evening Post, New York, New York, 11th of February, 1805, from the Washington Federalist. The plea or answer of Judge Chase to the articles of impeachment was too long to be accurately taken down from the reading. It shall, however, appear as soon as a correct copy can be obtained. The following impressive and eloquent conclusion we hasten to lay before our readers as a specimen of the ability with which the plea is drawn. This respondent has now laid before this honorable court as well as the time allowed him would permit all the circumstances of his case with a humble trust in providence and a consciousness that he hath discharged all his official duties with justice and impartiality to the best of his knowledge and abilities and that intentionally he hath committed no crime or misdemeanor or any violation of the constitution or laws of his country confiding in the impartiality independence and integrity of his judges and that they will patiently hear and conscientiously determine this case without being influenced by the spirit of party by popular prejudice or political motives he cheerfully submits himself to their decision if it shall appear to this honorable court from the evidence produced that he hath acted in his judicial character with willful injustice or partiality he doth not wish any favor but expects that the whole extent of the punishment permitted in the constitution will be inflicted upon him if any part of his official conduct shall appear to this honorable court strictly juris to have been illegal or to have proceeded from ignorance or error in judgment or if any part of his conduct shall appear although not illegal to have been irregular or improper but not to have flowed from a depravity of heart or any unworthy motive he feels confident that this court will make allowance for the imperfections and frailties incident to man. From the Fredericktown Herald, New York, 14th March, 1805. Last Saturday, on the arrival of the joyful news of Judge Chase's acquittal, a number of federal Republican gentlemen of this town met at Mrs. Kimball's tavern to congratulate each other on this unexpected event as the dawn of returning reason to their political adversaries and after spending the early part of the evening in social hilarity and appointing Dr. Philip Thomas, President, and Captain George Barr, Vice President. They sat down to an elegant supper prepared for the occasion at which the following toast was drunk. The Honorable Samuel Chase, still a judge of the Supreme Court of the United States, his official conduct has passed the ordeal and is proved to be pure. We've talked about the process of impeachment and the standard of impeachment, treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Things really get going with the, the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson.
Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln November 19, 1863 Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So to set the stage, Lincoln, of course, has been assassinated. Johnson is vice president, sends the presidency. And really, Johnson, to put it bluntly, is so opposed to enforcing the 13th Amendment of the United States. And the 13th Amendment, of course, ends chattel slavery. But it really does more than that. It was passed with the ambition of ending subordination based on race, to end racial discrimination. And that sort of broad agenda is seen by Johnson, who, although certainly not a Confederate, is a racist, as uh, not a laudable goal. He wants to basically return as much as we can to the pre-Civil War South, uh, allow for the reinstitution of a system of white supremacy, if not slavery. And his worry is, his agenda, is to undermine the holdovers from the Lincoln administration, who are working to try to end slavery to enforce the 13th Amendment. And his, I would say, chief enemy is the Secretary of War, Edward Stanton. And he makes it clear that Stanton's efforts in the South to protect African Americans from violence, to ensure their civil rights, that that's not consistent with his agenda. He gives a series of speeches to that effect, uh, deeply racist speeches around the country, and does a number of things, including makes it clear that he's thinking about firing Stanton that the Congress begins to fight back. And one of the things that they do is in order to protect Stanton, they pass a piece of legislation called the Tenure in Office Act. And that piece of legislation says that the President of the United States can't fire the Secretary of War. And when he does it anyway, that triggers uh, an extreme reaction, uh, I'd say, from those Republicans in Congress who are devoted to the 13th Amendment, who are devoted to really ending slavery, who believe that the war was fought for that purpose. And they decide to impeach and remove this president for high crimes and misdemeanors. The Selma Times of Messenger, Selma, Alabama, 22nd of August, 1867. We clip the following from a summary of the New York Express on the suspension of Mr. Stanton by the president. The Times takes the suspension much to heart and predicts all sorts of evil things for President Johnson. Therefore, Mr. Stanton is removed, not from maladministration or corruption or any wrongdoing of any sort, but solely and simply as a punishment of his sturdy unionism and his unyielding antagonism to the pro-rebel policy of the president. February 24th, 1868, 11 o'clock p.m. Impeachment of the President. On the 24th day of February, 1868, in the 80th year of the independence of the United States, and in the term of office of the 17th President, the House of Representatives solemnly impeached the Chief Magistrate of the nation, charging him before the world with the commission of high crimes and misdemeanors, and resolving to call upon that highest judicial tribunal known to the Constitution of the country, the High Court of Impeachment, to summon Andrew Johnson before it and put him upon trial on the indictment by them to be presented. Thus is inaugurated a proceeding provided for in the organic law of the land, but hitherto looked upon as a solemnity to be invoked and designed by the Patriot Fathers to be resorted to only when necessary to save the life of the nation. The offense of the president. The crime 
committed by this president, rendering necessary these unprecedented severe proceedings, is the removal of an obnoxious cabinet minister, an act which, though freely indulged in by every predecessor of the present incumbent of the executive office, has never been questioned, much less characterized as a high crime or misdemeanor. The issue focuses on the firing of Stanton, but I think that's misleading in some ways. There are other articles of impeachment that talk about the racist or intemperate attacks on Congress and really the agenda of Johnson. And the overall, I think, way to understand this impeachment, despite the specifics of the, the focus on the Tenure in Office Act, is that this was an attempt to remove a president who was seen not to be faithfully executing the laws, who was really undermining the reconstruction, the attempt to secure civil rights for African Americans. And that's really what's motivating the trial. Now that gets framed later in history as a partisan impeachment, that it was unfair. Most famously, John F. Kennedy in Profiles and Courage talks about this impeachment as being unfair and partisan and actually talks about the Republican who changes his vote to not impeach, not convict by the time we get to the Senate. Johnson as a hero, but I think that all obscures the, the wider dynamic, which is that, yes, this was partisan in the sense it was Republicans versus Democrats, but it was about a fundamental constitutional issue, and that was the end of slavery in the 13th Amendment. The outline of constitutional impeachment and removal leaves it to the sole discretion of the House and the Senate of how they're going to conduct these processes. But over time, there are certain conventions that have developed. And the main one uh, in the Senate trial that's important is that we don't have traditional prosecutors. It's not like the district attorney comes and prosecutes the president. Instead, the way that it works is that often those have taken the lead in the uh, House process. Uh, the House appoints what are called House managers. And those House managers go over to the Senate and conduct a, a sort of prosecution of the president. Again, we're not talking about putting the president in jail. We're talking about, it's not a criminal trial. We're talking about firing him or her. But they make the case. They press the case on behalf of the House and explain the reasons for the House's impeachment. So there are several managers, for instance, in the Andrew Johnson trial. One of them is John Bingham of Ohio, this sort of famous civil rights advocate who goes over there. Another is Thaddeus Stevens. These are names that people people know from that, that period in time. And they make the case for Johnson's impeachment. Uh, people disagree about why he was exonerated. Uh, it's one vote, short of two-thirds. Uh, he's very, very close to being impeached. It certainly has a negative effect on his career. He doesn't even get the nomination of his own party. His presidency is over at the end of his term. Not only is a civil rights bill passed over his veto, but an amendment is passed. The Congress really sends a message that this undermining of, of the end of slavery is not acceptable. There are different arguments about why it was one vote short. I think he did commit high crimes and misdemeanors for the reasons that I outlined. But strategically, the focus, I think, on the Tenure in Office Act was a mistake. Now it's hindsight is twenty twenty, but when we look back at it, it's really hard to understand why this would be such a big deal. In the modern world, for instance, I think constitutional scholars would agree that when it comes to cabinet members, at least, the Senate can't keep the president from firing the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense. And so it looks like it's probably on our own standards now, unconstitutional, and at the time, it seemed like a very abstract issue to people. And so the momentum didn't get going. And I think a probably Frederick Douglass basically said this in a very famous article at the time, 
let's just be honest about what's going on. This is about the president's racism. This is about the undermining of the end of slavery, the whole reason why the war had been fought. And those issues do come up. There are multiple articles of impeachment. They don't all focus on the Tenure in Office Act, but that certainly gets the bulk of the tension in the Senate proceedings. And I, I think possibly for that strategic reason, that it just seems too abstract an issue, this narrative gets going that, that he doesn't deserve it, that this is a weird issue. And it's a narrative that lasts for today. I mean, uh, John F. Kennedy wins the Pulitzer Prize for, for repeating that mistake. Uh, certainly, Johnson objected to his own impeachment, and Johnson's party and the Democrats regarded this as a partisan impeachment, and they said that. But I think there was a real sense that this was an extraordinary thing to do uh, after the Civil War uh, to impeach and remove a president. And the Republicans that were engaging in it, I don't think they did it frivolously. I don't think they saw it as anything like a no-confidence vote. And, you know, when we pull back and look at what was at stake, uh, a war had been fought, a terrible, destructive war. I don't need to tell your listeners that. And the purpose of the war, the thing that had come out of it at least, the 13th Amendment, the end of slavery, was really being jeopardized by the chief executive. And the president's job is to faithfully execute the office and faithfully execute the law. And here was a fundamental change to the Constitution, a fundamental part of really redefining the republic that this president wasn't just failing to respect and execute, but was undermining. And that's why I think they felt so pressed that this wasn't any issue. It wasn't a partisan issue. It was really about an undermining of the Constitution. And I think they did take it seriously. I think the documentation, the arguments were careful. The articles are drawn up in a very careful way. They get overly legalistic about it. I think that's their real mistake, this focus on this one law, the Tenure and Office Act, and the defiance of Congress over that law doesn't capture the stakes that, that I've been trying to make the case to the listeners that, that were really happening at that time. And when we think of it as a president basically refusing to end slavery, uh, I think we see why that there was, at least in retrospect, a real constitutional crisis that was going on. Uh, I'd even call it a constitutional catastrophe, why they were um, both principled and, and right to seek that impeachment. The Guardian, Manchester, Monday, May 18th, 1868. Summary of news, foreign. President Johnson has escaped conviction, but so close was the division that the vote of a single senator of the minority would have sufficed if transferred to the majority to secure for conviction. On Saturday, the Senate voted upon the 11th and most important article of impeachment, and the result was that 35 senators declared for a conviction and 19 for an acquittal, no senator apparently having abstained from voting. As a majority of two-thirds was legally required for a conviction, the president was necessarily acquitted upon the 11th article, and the Senate then adjourned until the 26th without taking any vote upon the first 10 articles. It is, of course, however, to be taken for granted that acquittal on the last article is tantamount to acquittal. From NBC News Election Headquarters in New York, 
This is NBC Nightly News, Tuesday, November 7th. And good evening to you all as we begin our coverage of the 1972 election. To cover the returns in contest for 435 seats in the House of Representatives, 33 in the Senate, 18 governorships, and of course the presidency. So let's begin with a look at the popular votes recorded so far for the presidency. We've been looking at some of the returns from our specially chosen precincts. Precincts that will tell us how different kinds of voters are voting. It is now clear that Richard Nixon is the winner of this election. What we have learned so far from the votes already cast continues to happen as the polls close across the country. The president will be re-elected in a landslide. That's what our trend now indicates. The president re-elected by a landslide. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither president, obviously, or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. When we talk about the impeachment of Richard Nixon, we never get even to a full vote by the House of Representatives. He makes the decision to step down once he realizes that there are the votes there to both impeach and to remove him. Uh, after a delegation of Republicans goes to basically tell him that, he, he makes the decision to, to step down. But the process is still important. We begin, I think, before in Nixon's first term with this water break, gate break-in and reports about it and some investigation of it. But it's important to remember that he wins in a landslide that election. And it's only in the second term that the committees really get going. And to my mind, there are a couple of moments in the Senate committee that really make a difference in changing the tide from the thought that this might be just a partisan impeachment uh, inquiry, uh, big nothing, to one that both Republicans and Democrats realized required them to join forces to take down this president. And that really led Republicans in a soul-searching moment to put country over party. And that really is, I think, uh, what brought about the end. And the two moments in the Senate committee, and let's remember, too, there was no cable news, no Internet. Uh, everybody was watching this on television. The country, regardless of their various reactions, were coming together to watch it. Uh, there was one great reporter who I've had the chance to meet, Gail Shee, who covers it in a bar in Staten Island and uh, is with the president's supporters. So on all ends, people are really paying attention to this. And the two moments that I'd point to are the testimony of John Dean. Really, you know, this is an inside the president's counsel coming and saying that this is a criminal president and basically giving evidence that suggests that he's deeply violated the oath. And um, it's criminal, I guess, is a blunt way to put it and sort of coming clean about his own role there. Uh, he's asked at one point by, I believe, Senator Baker, most famously. What did the president know and when did he know it? When Dean tells it, uh, the thought is that Baker was trying to call him out to get him to perjure himself, to sort of get him to give details that would show that he was 
not a good actor and that he was lying to Congress. But when he starts to give his answers, <laughs> you know, he knows a lot about what the president knew. And uh, the president knew a lot and intended a lot of um, criminal, I would say, activity. Dean, in more recent times, for instance, has even talked about a plot to blow up the Brookings Institution, something that wasn't covered during the Watergate trial. So the, the malice was pretty widespread. And then, of course, the second moment that really matters, because at this point, it's just Dean's word against the president's, is the revelation from White House aid that these conversations have all been taped, that basically everything in the Oval Office is, is recorded, and that the American people, if they, these tapes can be subpoenaed, can hear it. And that realization that it's all on tape, I think the president and his people start to realize that the game is up. And You know, the crucial vote comes. There is one formal vote that makes a big difference, and that's in the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. All those opposed, no. Call of the roll is demanded, and the clerk will call the roll. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. All those opposed, no. Mr. Donahue. Aye. Mr. Brooks. Aye. Mr. Kastenmeyer. Aye. Mr. Edwards. Aye. Mr. Fraley. Mr. Hungate. Aye. Mr. Morgan. No. Mr. Marazzini. No. Mr. Rodino. Aye. The House Judiciary Committee has just approved its first article of impeachment against President Nixon. The vote, 27 to 11. Mr. Chairman. Clerical report. 27 members have voted aye. 11 members have voted no. And pursuant to the resolution, Article 1, that resolution is adopted and will be reported to the House. And that winds up being a bipartisan vote where Democrats and some Republican members team up to vote together on some articles of impeachment. And once those articles are voted up, it's clear to the president, I think, that he's got to step down. And uh, not too long after that, uh, he does step down. The other battle that's going on is, you know, if, if we never get the tapes, then maybe the president can get away with it. But the Supreme Court in U.S. v. Nixon decides a case not about the subpoena of the tapes by the Congress, but a subpoena of the tapes. Um, U.S. v. Nixon, this case, is famously known as an 8-0 decision. They say that the special prosecutor who's been appointed to look into the criminal wrongdoing here has a right to subpoena the tapes. The president is an unindicted co-conspirator in prosecutions relating to Watergate, and he has to turn them over, the Supreme Court says, eight to zero with only Rehnquist dissenting. That House vote put too much pressure on the president, and he voluntarily steps down. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere to make every possible effort to complete the term of office. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have 
a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved and my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. 
Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Bill Clinton proves his title, the comeback kid. He is our projected winner as president of the United States, re-elected for a second term, the first Democrat since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is the headquarters in Little Rock, Arkansas tonight. A night of triumph. Do you think he could have gotten away with a complete mea culpa in January, when he decided to cover it up, you think at that moment he could have said, I'm going to throw all my money on the table, the American people like me, they're going to buy this? Well, I think he probably couldn't do any worse. I don't think he could do worse. I think his lawyers, and in particular the lawyer representing him with respect to Paula Jones, I thought did a terrible job. Right. He should have never been there. He should have Bill never gotten in there. I mean, what, what Bennett did in that case was, I, I think he just you did a terrible You would have job. settled. Well, I would, have done, I would have done something certainly different than what they did. I mean, that all started it. Paula Jones is a loser, but the fact is that she may be responsible for bringing down a president indirectly. Congress has never, never removed the president from office. Is this where we want to set the bar for future presidents? It's presidential conduct that Congress will now investigate. Tonight, the House Judiciary Committee votes to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Clinton's behavior. By the time we get to December 19th, 1998, we get the uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton. Unlike Nixon, there is a full vote of the House of Representatives that day, and he is impeached, and that impeachment is then going to be sent to the Senate for a full trial. Uh, But unlike Nixon, it's not going to end in the resignation of a president. Bill Clinton makes the decision, and his aides make the decision, that they're going to fight the accusations here that this is really about the way that they're framing it, exactly what the framers didn't want, a disagreement about policy, a dislike of the president personally, in short, that it's a partisan impeachment. And he's going to fight tooth and nail to show that, that his accusers don't care about the Constitution, that they aren't really doing their oaths, that there is no oath of impartiality that's being taken seriously by the senators who are uh, trying him. And instead, they're just attacking him for his politics. And that's an abuse of the, not an abuse of power by the president, but an abuse of the process of impeachment and removal by the House and the Senate. And he's going to fight it tooth and nail. There is a role here, arguably like Nixon, actually, of a prosecutor. And it's important to see that by this time, Nixon's uh, abuses were seen as so bad that we needed an entirely different system of investigating a a president. So we go from a special prosecutor system during Richard Nixon, where the person investigating the president essentially works for the person who works for the president, works for the attorney general, and can be fired. 
Nixon famously orders uh, his attorney general to fire Archibald Cox, who's looking into his wrongdoing. Richardson re- refuses. Uh, we get another uh, attorney general is fired. This has become known as the Saturday Night Massacre, uh, the firing of uh, two attorneys generals until we get Robert Bork, who does fire Cox. Now, all of that leads the Congress to create this new office that's really essential to understanding the Clinton presidency. And that office is the office of the independent prosecutor. And unlike the system in place during Richard Nixon, the independent prosecutor doesn't work for the president in the traditional sense. He or she can only be fired with cause. There are all sorts of checks by the judiciary to ensure against the firing of Ken Starr, who has this role of the independent prosecutor. And Starr, um, the investigation of the president begins, the independent prosecutor's office is looking into wrongdoings in the travel office, a variety of things. But eventually... Uh, the investigation is expanded with the permission, I should say, of uh, the Cl- Clinton attorney general, knowing, I think, partly that this is an independent office and, and the attorney general doesn't want to interfere in that office. Potentially damaging cloud is hanging over the White House this morning. CNN has confirmed that Whitewater counsel Kenneth Starr has been granted permission to expand his investigation. He will be looking into new allegations that President Clinton had an affair with a former White House intern and then urged her to lie about it. CNN White House correspondent John King is following the story, and he joins us now from the White House. John? Well, Donna, what began as a search for evidence in the Paula Jones sexual harassment case has mushroomed into another investigation of the president and his personal conduct. Now, sources tell CNN that independent counsel Kenneth Starr is investigating whether the president and his confidant, Washington lobbyist Merton Jordan, asked a former White House intern to lie about a relationship she says or at least alleges to have with the president. Now, at issue is whether the intern had a sexual relationship with the president, something the Jones teams wants to prove as part of its sexual harassment case. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. The investigation expands and it turns out in the course of this expanded investigation that the president is having an affair with an intern, Monica Lewinsky. And the accusation is that the president has perjured himself when it's come to questions from a private lawsuit got asked about Lewinsky. And so under oath, the president of the United States has perjured himself. There are also concerns that the president is obstructing justice by instructing Monica Lewinsky to lie. There are concerns about his influence over Betty Curie, his, his secretary, unduly influencing her to obstruct the investigation. And all of those things lead Starr to ask himself a question. Should he indict the sitting president of the United States, bring criminal charges against them? And Starr's office actually releases a memo saying that that is an option, that a sitting president can be indicted. That's very different from what the Nixon office of legal counsel had said that sitting presidents can't be prosecuted, can't be indicted. But Starr makes the decision on his own. He's not going to indict Clinton, even though he's committed crimes. He's going to basically turn over a massive report about the president's obstruction of justice, perjury included, to the House of Representatives for consideration of impeachment. And then that triggers 
this impeachment and then the vote to impeach Clinton and, and the Senate trial with really a massive amount of information about this obstruction of justice, this perjury given by Starr's office, including famously lots of details that were in the report about the kind of sexual relations that the president had had with Monica Lewinsky. The question occurs on Article 2 as amended. All those in favor will say aye. Aye. Pose nay. In the opinion of the chair, a record vote had best be called. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Sensenbrenner. Aye. Mr. Sensenbrenner votes aye. Mr. Meehan. No. Mr. Meehan votes no. Mr. Delahunt. No. Could I have the count again? Mr. Chairman, I have 20 ayes and 17 noes. And the article is agreed to. The House votes to impeach the Senate. It goes to a Senate trial. That decision, though, on the question of obstruction of justice uh, is 50-50, which is, of course, short of the two-thirds. There are two articles of impeachment, I should say. One is about perjury. The other is obstruction of justice. And on the obstruction of justice, on, the, on February 12, 1999, the Senate falls well short of the two-thirds majority, 50-50. And on the, that's on obstruction of justice. On the perjury charge, 55 vote not guilty, and there were 45 guilty votes. So there isn't even a majority there, and well short in both cases of the two-thirds. You know, the legacy there is that many people think of that as a partisan impeachment, but as we think back on it, you know, there is good evidence that the president has perjured himself and obstructed justice, and I think there might be a reconsideration of whether or not that's enough for a high crime and misdemeanor. Uh, we can't think about this, by the way. One, one challenge in, for all of us listening to this and thinking about it is to not think about protecting the president that we like and opposing the president, favoring impeachment the president that we don't like. The Constitution creates a duty for American citizens, for those thinking about this, and certainly for House of members and senators. Uh, and that's to think about the facts. Did the president commit high crimes and misdemeanors, treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors or not? As we go through history, we get a little distance. It might be easier to do that than, than when we're in the time. But certainly going forward, it's incumbent on all of us to not not just make this a, a question of, of like or dislike of a president's politics. That's the one thing, clearly, that we're not supposed to do. Tonight's top ten list. Let's try this. Tonight, uh, possible first lines for Monica Lewinsky's uh, new book. You all know the drill. We've been through this before. Even as a baby, my parents noticed I had an unusual attachment to my pacifier. Number nine, give me all your hot intern love, said the big creep. Number eight, it was a dark and windowless corridor. Number seven, Dear Penthouse, I never thought I'd be writing one of these letters. Number six, I knew someday I'd go down in history. Number five. Number five. Like I hate, 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 hate Linda Tripp. Number four. Does this font make me look fat? Number three. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. No, it was mostly bad. Uh, number two, by the time you read this, I'll be on to my next president. And the number one possible first line for Monica Lewinsky's new book, Me and My Big Mouth.
I think we can't talk about impeachment without looking at public opinion, despite the oath of impartiality. Senators and House members are uh, responsive to their constituents. They're thinking about what they think. And certainly in the case of Nixon's impeachment, you see a skyrocketing of those favoring him stepping down from office. I believe it's in the high 50s the day he steps down. The support certainly in the first term is very low for, for him to step down, and as evidenced by the fact that he, in a landslide victory, wins re-election even after the Watergate is broke. And that's just not true in the Clinton impeachment. There isn't a, he's in his second term, but there, there isn't a huge support for Clinton to step down, and Clinton wins that battle in the hearts and minds of the American people. Now, in historical retrospect, we could see it a couple of ways. One is that the, the country just becomes more partisan, less willing to do what the Judiciary Committee did during Nixon's impeachment, and that's to put country over party, to do what the framers asked us to do. And maybe things are just too partisan for that to happen during the Clinton impeachment. Another way to, to see it, you know, I think defenders of Clinton would say this, is, you know, look, the accusations are totally different. The break-in in order to hack an election, and that's what we're talking about in the Nixon case, it's really election cheating, it really imperils the whole system of democracy. That's what the framers were worried about. That's why the Republicans defected and put country over party. And with Bill Clinton, it was bad to perjure himself, to obstruct justice, but there was no threat to the electoral system, to the electoral integrity, to the republic itself. And it was about character and, you know, something that was wrong, maybe that deserved disbarment or something, but not that, and maybe criticism, but not, not removal. Uh, removal is really about protecting the country and protecting the republic. So, so I think those are the two, two ways to see the, the differences there. Now that the Senate has fulfilled its constitutional responsibility, bringing this process to a conclusion, I want to say again to the American people how profoundly sorry I am for what I said and did to trigger these events and the great burden they have imposed on the Congress and on the American people. I also am humbled and very grateful for the support and the prayers I have received from millions of Americans over this past year. Now I ask all Americans, and I hope all Americans, here in Washington and throughout our land, will rededicate ourselves to the work of serving our nation and building our future together. This can be, and this must be, a time of reconciliation and renewal for America. Thank you very much. I believe any person who asks for forgiveness has to be prepared to give it. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. 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 Going into this night, where do we stand? This is where we stood coming into the night. 268 to 204, so clearly an advantage for Secretary Clinton. Take a look here. If Donald Trump wins tonight, no matter who they voted for, take a look at these numbers here. 
21% say they'll be concerned. 37% say they'll be scared. All along, the Trump campaign has been saying that Florida's must win for them. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it, they it, can't it, win without it. Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. You know, I'm, I'm guessing that the people in Brooklyn, they're probably they're I can see their fingers. That's probably, Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah, fingers probably bleeding because there's no more nail to bite. Uh, there are I wouldn't call anything encouraging for Hillary Clinton at the moment, to be honest with you, my friend. Wolf, the scene here is so different than it was a few hours ago when people were happy and relaxed. I have been looking around the room at people who are stone faced. Some of them have been crying. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president. This is the people rising up saying it's time to listen to us. It's time to listen to us in Michigan and Wisconsin and work for the people. Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to concede the race. The most recent impeachment of a president, of course, happens in the summer of 2019 in July. Sorry, is triggered, I should say, by events there. The focus is on a phone conversation between the president of the United States, Donald Trump, and President Zelensky, the new president of the Ukraine. You have seen the log. What does it say? All right, well, this is five-page transcript. It appears to be a nearly complete transcript of the July call, Poppy, where President Trump asked Ukrainian President Zelensky several times to collaborate with Attorney General Barr and his attorney, uh, Rudy Giuliani, his private attorney, to look into Biden and his son, Hunter. Now, we should note President Zelensky mentioned outreach to Giuliani first. Again, it's five pages. This was on page four where Biden was brought up. President Trump starts off the conversation telling the Ukrainian leader about how much help the U.S. has offered to Ukraine in comparison to European countries. Now, he doesn't specifically mention military aid, but says the U.S. has been, quote, very, very good to Ukraine. So not an explicit quid pro quo, but the president was clearly teeing up his request to Ukraine. Trump then says... I would like you to do us a favor. He then mentioned Biden on page four. He says, there's a lot of talk about Biden and his son, and a lot of people want to find out if Biden stopped the prosecution of a company tied to his son. The accusation of those who bring the articles of impeachment is that what happened in the course of that phone call, what was revealed was a pressure campaign to use the resources of the United States, the funds of the United States, and also a White House meeting of official acts by the president in order to coerce the president of the Ukraine to give him dirt, to solicit dirt on the president's opponent, Joe Biden, specifically to do with his son and uh, alleged corruption. The House of Representatives argues in its two articles of impeachment, in its first, that this is an abuse of power of exactly the kind that the framers were talking about real threat to the republic and the first article of impeachment that's voted up is about abuse of power and then there's the second article of impeachment which is that in the process of trying to uncover what's happened here we didn't have the benefit of something like the star investigation or the cox investigation we don't have a special prosecutor or an independent prosecutor looking into this issue of course robert Mueller had been a special prosecutor looking into other allegations of obstruction of justice, of uh, an investigation in particular about the president collaborating with the Russian government to hack the, for his first election. The testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief. So help you God. So the report did not conclude 
that he did not commit obstruction of justice. That is correct. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Did your investigation find that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from one of the candidates winning? Yes. And which candidate would that be? Well, it uh, would be Trump. Uh, Trump. Correct. You found evidence, as you lay out in your report, that the president wanted to fire you because you were uh, investigating him for obstruction of justice. Isn't that correct? That's what it says in the report, yes. And I go, I stand behind the report. Dr. Mueller, that shouldn't happen in America. No president should be able to escape investigation by abusing his power. Anyone else who blatantly interfered with a criminal investigation like yours would be arrested and indicted on charges of obstruction of justice. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. It is fair to say then that there were limits on what evidence was available to your investigation of both Russia election interference and obstruction of justice. That's true and it's usually the case. And that lies by Trump campaign officials and administration officials impeded your investigation. Uh, I would generally agree with that. When the president said the Russian interference was a hoax, that was false, wasn't it? True. This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, November 4th, 2016. Any of those quotes disturb you, Mr. Director? Protecting the sanctity of our elections begins, however, with the recognition that accepting foreign help is disloyal to our country, unethical, and wrong. We cannot control what the Russians do, not completely, but we can decide what we do. And that this centuries-old experiment we call American democracy is worth cherishing. Director Mueller, thank you again for being here today. And before I adjourn, I would like to excuse you and Mr. Zebley. And Mueller decides that he can't prosecute the president, even though he's got 10 instances of obstruction of justice, because the Department of Justice has a policy that say, unlike what Starr said, that sitting presidents can't be indicted. Now, Mueller goes and testifies for the House of Representatives. He said in the report that it's time for an alternative constitutional process, by which he clearly means impeachment. But after that testimony, it's kind of lackluster. Uh, the, the House doesn't do anything. They, they decide they're not going to impeach the president for anything that's uncovered in the Mueller report. But something else happens after that testimony. The next day, in the summer of 2019, the president has that phone call with the president of the Ukraine. And the allegation is that he abuses his power by trying to pressure him in order to get information for campaign purposes on his rival, Joe Biden. And that's enough for the House then to vote up an article of impeachment about abuse of power. And then a second, because there is no investigation, there is no, I should say, um, special prosecutor's office, no Mueller report on the Ukrainian phone call that happens after the Mueller report. The House tries to get witnesses, tries to get information, tries to get documents. And they argue that the stonewalling by the president is enough to constitute a second article of impeachment, and that's obstruction of Congress. Today, as Speaker of the House, I solemnly and sadly open the debate 
on the impeachment of the President of the United States. If we do not act now, we would be derelict in our duty. It is tragic that the President's reckless actions make impeachment necessary. He gave us no choice. For the very first time in modern history, we've seen a political faction in Congress promise from the moment, the moment a president election ended, they would find some way to overturn it. Meanwhile, Democrats continue questioning the president's motives. If a president of the United States is using his office and the power of the presidency against a country that is dependent upon the United States of America, if he's doing that just to get a political advantage for his own personal uh, campaign, that is a serious, serious matter. Congress is in recess for the holidays until early January, when House lawmakers may decide on sending their articles of impeachment to the Senate for trial. For a variety of reasons, the House of Representatives, um, after Mueller's testimony, do not bring articles of impeachment. And I think one thought here is by Nancy Pelosi that this is going to backfire. She thinks that if, if we do this, it's going to be seen as partisan, it's going to empower the president. And people like Cory Bretschneider and his, she doesn't say this, but I imagine in my wildest dreams that she would. We read Cory Bretschneider's book. He says that this isn't a partisan issue, but you're obligated to do it if the president does commit high crimes and misdemeanors, but we're not going to do it that way. We're going to think about this as a political mistake if we go ahead and impeach for the obstruction of justice in the Mueller report. Part two outlined 10 instances of obstruction of justice. We're not going to do that. We're going to let it go this time and uh, move on. But I think when the transcript is released and the House members begin to look into this attempt to pressure the president of the Ukraine in order to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son, it's a green light, basically. This is, I think, the argument of the House, that we're going to just give the president carte blanche to do what he wants. And that's dangerous for the country. And this really is an instance of the kind of abuse of power, the abuse of the public trust that Hamilton and others warned about. Caution. A memorandum of a telephone conversation is not a verbatim transcript of a discussion. The text in this document records the notes and recollections of Situation Room duty officers and NSC policy staff assigned to listen and memorialize the conversation in written form. The United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessarily because things are happening that are not good, but the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. Yes, you are absolutely right. Not only 100%, but actually 1,000%. And I'm very grateful to you for that because the United States is doing quite a lot for Ukraine, much more than the European Union, especially when we are talking about sanctions against the Russian Federation. I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say CrowdStrike, the server. They say Ukraine has it. There were a lot of things that went on, the whole situation. I would like to have the Attorney General call you or your people, and I would like you to get to the bottom of it. As you saw yesterday, that whole nonsense ended with a very poor performance by a man named Robert Mueller. Whatever you can do, it's very important that you do it if that's possible. For me as a president, it is very important and we are open for any future cooperation. We are ready to open a new page on cooperation and relations between the United States and Ukraine. For that purpose, I just recalled our ambassador from United States and he will be replaced by a very competent and very experienced ambassador who will work hard on making sure that our two nations are getting closer. 
I would also like and hope to see him having your trust and your confidence and have personal relations with you so we can cooperate even more so. I will personally tell you that one of my assistants spoke with Mr. Giuliani just recently, and we are hoping very much that Mr. Giuliani will be able to travel to Ukraine, and we will meet once he comes to Ukraine. Good, because I heard you had a prosecutor who was very good, and he was shut down, and that's really unfair. A lot of people are talking about that, the way they shut your very good prosecutor down, and you had some very bad people involved. Mr. Giuliani is a highly respected man. He was the mayor of New York City, a great mayor, and I would like him to call you. I will ask him to call you along with the attorney general. Rudy very much knows what's happening. If you could speak to him, that would be great. The other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it, have Mr. Giuliani give you a call, and I'm also going to have Attorney General Barr call, and we will get to the bottom of it. I'm sure you will figure it out. I also wanted to thank you for your invitation to visit the United States, specifically Washington, D.C. On the other hand, I also want to ensure you that we will be very serious about the case and will work on the investigation. There's an argument, an interesting one, among scholars who are brought in to debate this. Some say it's an abuse of power and he did it. And Jonathan Turley from George Washington says exactly what I've been saying, and I think that's important for listeners to know, that the person that Trump brings in to defend himself in the House uh, says exactly what I've been saying. And that's because there really is agreement, I think, about the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, treason, bribery and high crimes and misdemeanors. And so the, the Trump defender says, I agree too, but we just don't have enough evidence at this point. And that's really the debate, I think, in the House. The articles are voted up, and then it goes to the Senate, and something very strange and different happens in the Senate trial. One thing is that more evidence comes out from the president's own defenders, the own administration, that suggests that, yes, he did do this, including John Bolton. President Donald Trump denied explosive new claims from his former national security advisor, John Bolton, contained in a looming tell-all book. According to the New York Times, Bolton writes that Trump told him to freeze $400 million in military aid to Ukraine until officials there helped with the investigations Trump wanted into his rival Joe Biden. That directly contradicts the president's ongoing impeachment defense. The pause on security assistance was distinct and unrelated to investigations. Once a close Trump ally, Bolton left the White House late last year. White House officials have testified he was aware of the scheme to pressure Ukraine and angrily called it a drug deal. Uh, in the House testimony, I should say, too, there was a debate about whether there was enough information because there is testimony from David Holmes and others that suggests that, yes, the president was engaged in this attempt to try to coerce the president of the Ukraine to give him dirt on his opponent. But there's not a, a disagreement about constitutional matters in the House. Uh, and so I want to emphasize that. And there is in the Senate. And I think I need to address that because it really goes to the heart of everything that we've been talking about. Question is directed to counsel for the president. How does the non-criminal abuse of power standard advanced by the House managers differ from maladministration, an impeachment standard rejected by the framers? Where is the line between such an abuse of power and a policy disagreement? 
Thank you very much for that question, because that question, I think, hits the key to the issue that's before you today. When the framers rejected maladministration, and recall that it was introduced by Mason and rejected by Madison on the ground that it would turn our new republic into a parliamentary democracy, where a prime minister, in this case a president, can be removed at the pleasure of the legislature. Remember, too, that in Britain, impeachment was not used against the prime minister. All you needed was a vote of no confidence. It was used against lower-level people. And so maladministration was introduced by Mason, and Madison said, no, it would turn us. It was just too vague and too general. Now, what, what is maladministration? If you look it up in the dictionary and you look up synonyms, the synonyms include abuse, corruption, misrule, dishonesty, misuse of office, and misbehavior. Even Professor Nicholas Bowie, a Harvard professor who was in favor of impeachment, so this is an admission against interest by him. He's in favor of impeachment. He says abuse of power is the same as misconduct in office, and he says that his research leads him to conclude that a crime is required. By the way, the congressman was just completely wrong when he said, I'm the only scholar who supports this position. In the 19th century, which is much closer in time to when the framers wrote, Dean Dwight of the Columbia Law School wrote that the weight of authority, by which he meant the weight of scholarly authority and the weight of judicial authority, this is 1867, the weight of authority is in favor of requiring a crime. Justice Curtis came to the same conclusion. Others have come to a similar conclusion. You asked what happened between 1998 and the current to change my mind. What happened between the 19th century and the 20th century to change the mind of so many scholars? Let me tell you what happened. What happened is that the current president was impeached. If, in fact, President Obama or President Hillary Clinton had been impeached, the weight of current scholarship would be clearly in favor of my position because these scholars do not pass the shoe on the other foot test. These scholars are influenced by their own bias, by their own politics, and their views should be taken with that in mind. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. When Alan Dershowitz testifies, he says a couple of things. One is that every scholar in constitutional law, he's a scholar of criminal law, but he's opining on this, is wrong. That it requires a crime. That a crime crime is required for high crime and misdemeanor. And the other is that as long as the president believes that he's pursuing his best interest, that he can do what he did. He can really do anything, I guess, is his argument. And that strikes me as a really different moment in American history, because uh, although there's disagreement about the facts, there's disagreement during Clinton and during Trump about whether or not this is the kind of issue that results in a high crime and misdemeanor, there's really not a lot of disagreement about the meaning of impeachment, about the process, or about the meaning of tre treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. 
But when Dershowitz says that on the Senate floor, it really enrages scholars like myself because he's lying to you. It, it not only is false as in the sense that it, it, it doesn't cohere with what the framers thought they were doing, it's not logical. It's impossible for it to be the case that the framers were talking about statutory crimes when they were writing a constitution before there were any federal statutory crimes. That's clearly not the standard that they're laying out. And the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, as we've repeatedly said, doesn't ref- there is no statutory crime of high, high crimes and misdemeanors. So to my mind, that, that really is the worst moment. Maybe in impeachment history is when this so-called academic, so-called professor, he is a former professor, but gets up there and lies to the American people about the meaning of this very important check on presidential power. Jonathan Turley, importantly, refuses to say anything like that, and uh, even though he defends the president in the House on the grounds that there's not enough evidence uh, for, for impeachment. We must vote to reject the House abuse of power, vote to protect our institutions, vote to reject new precedents that would reduce the framers' design to rubble, vote to keep factional fever from boiling over and scorching our republic. I urge every one of our colleagues to cast the vote, the facts, the evidence, the Constitution, and the common good clearly require. Vote to acquit the president of these charges. If Americans believe that they don't determine who is president, who is governor, who is senator, but some foreign potentate out of reach of any law enforcement can join us our elections, that's the beginning of end of democracy. So it's a serious charge. The Republicans refused to get the evidence because they were afraid of what it would show. And that's all that needs to be said. I believe that the Constitution, its meaning is clear. And I think that many people behaved admirably in this impeachment process. Um, I think the House took its duty seriously, that senators listened as the ar- many important arguments were made. but. There were some bad things that happened. I think uh, getting up on the Senate floor and claiming that the president can do anything he wants as long as he believes it's in the best interest in the country uh, would have exonerated uh, Richard Nixon. It's sort of a reconsideration of that lesson that America was taught that, no, a president can't get away with abusing power. Nixon certainly thought that the Watergate break-in was in the interest of the country because he thought that if he wasn't reelected, you know, in the hands of the Democrats, the country would fall apart. And so he thought that he was doing the right thing in ordering this break-in. But the lesson of Watergate is, no, a president's not above the law. The lesson of U.S. v. Nixon is a president has to hand over information. And so Dershowitz's moment on the Senate floor and those who really echoed what he was saying uh, are risking undermining the process, risking making it look like there really are no impeachable offenses. And what that does is eviscerate the, the fundamental, most important check on power Uh, that the framers gave us. And that's the ability to remove through legal means a president who uh, imperils uh, our democracy. The U.S. Senate has found President Trump not guilty of abuse of power and the obstruction of Congress. Donald Trump had been charged with high crimes and misdemeanors by the members of the House of Representatives. But as expected, the Republican majority in the Senate cleared him, which means he will fight for re-election in November. Senators, how say you? Is the respondent Donald John Trump guilty or not guilty? A process that started last September came to an end today, with senators voting one by one on the two articles of impeachment. 
Mr. Alexander, not guilty. Ms. Baldwin. Ms. Baldwin, guilty. And then the verdict. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charges in said articles. But the wall of Republican unity was broken by Mitt Romney. The former presidential candidate with a bombshell speech said he would vote to convict the president of abuse of office. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. I think there's a real danger that impeachment going forward will be seen as something like a no-confidence vote, as just a partisan exercise. We did hear one senator claim without any evidence that if Joe Biden is elected president, that she'll bring articles of impeachment against him. For what? You know, I'm not sure. Something, I guess, involving his son. There's no even accusation, really, that Biden was, or evidence that he was directly involved here. So that kind of thing worries me, that threatening to impeach a candidate based on nothing. You know, the Constitution isn't self-reinforcing. It doesn't, there's nothing about it that guarantees that it's going to last, that anything in it will, will have meaning. And in this process in particular, we can't rely on courts to enforce it because they've said that it's the sole power of the House to impeach and the sole power of the Senate to try so it's up to the American people, up to podcasts like this, to our listeners, to try to think about this process in nonpartisan terms as being about abuse of power, to look at the framers and to do a lot of what we've done. I think kind of reconsidering the Johnson and Clinton impeachments, which we're a little more distance from, uh, helps us, uh, for Democrats in particular, to think, you know, really, if the president uh, perjures himself, is that definitely not a high crime? Is that just something personal rather than something that goes to a threat to the president's fundamental role? I'm, I'm not so sure that that partisan divide was the right way to see it. If we go even further back to the Johnson impeachment. We have to reconsider, as I say in, in my book, The Oath in the Office, John F. Kennedy was just wrong to think this was a partisan impeachment. It was about a president who was abusing power and really threatening to undermine the end of slavery, a core part of what makes us a legitimate democracy. So we can try to save it if we really focus on the framing period, being honest about past impeachments. And I think it's a power that's worth preserving. It's necessary to protect the republic from a president who is either criminal or who threatens our democracy. Corey, thank you for stepping into the breach and giving us uh, the historical sweep of impeachment in the American political process. Um, we do have one question from our 10 American presidents Facebook group. It's from Tyrant Fish, who said, I'd be interested in the British force slash English president of the institution, as well as some of the terms involved. Um 
as we were talking about, the model for the standard of treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors comes from the British Parliament, and specifically from cases in which the House of Commons impeached and removed officers for abuses of power. So I'd say one of the most famous cases that the framers were certainly aware of was the case of Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Stratford. And in 1640, the House of Commons uh, impeached him. And I'll just read you the article of impeachment. You could see the degree to which there's overlap with the um, mm-hmm. American standard. They, they say that he hath traitorously endeavored to subvert the fundamental laws and government of the realms and is instead thereof to introduce arbitrary and tyrannical government against law. So it's all about abuse of power, all about the, the themes that we were talking about. And it really goes beyond talking about specific crimes, certainly not American criminal statutes here. We're in, in really subverting the interests of the people. And for the Americans, those who were, became American citizens who were founding the country at the time, uh, the thought was you, you'd wanted to be able to extend that protection, not just against officials, but against the chief official, the chief executive, given how much power we were investing in that office. I think an interesting thing from the British perspective is that by the end of the 18th century, definitely by the start of the 19th century, impeachment in, in the British parliamentary system basically ends. It kind of uh, goes out of fashion. And I presume that because as British democracy becomes uh, stronger, the, the whole notion was that actually the people can vote this shower out of office. Um, And also we don't invest that much power and symbolism in the office of the prime minister, as you guys do with the president, because our head of state is somebody else. Um, So there there are kind of key differences. And and one of the things which is you brought up over and over is this kind of vote of no confidence, which is something which parliament does have over the executive in the United Kingdom in a, in a parliamentary system. Right. Yeah, I don't think you need it. Uh, you do need it when you have kingly power of a significant kind and you worry about executives who are going to abuse power. Um, but when you have a no-confidence vote, I think that replaces impeachment. It serves as a proxy for it. And that's why in the American case it's so important because we don't have the no-confidence vote. We have a system that resembles the British monarchy to some degree. Um, of course, in many ways, it's very different. Uh, we have to have a, a normalized legal system of of removing the the person in our system who's much most like the king, and that, that's the president. That's how we avoid him or her becoming a king. That's the whole point, and that's what's so dangerous too about eviscerating the power. It really is the main check on uh, the presidency collapsing into something like a, a monarchy or a dictatorship. Uh, Corey Brett Snyder, thank you for coming on to 10 American Presidents. But just before we go, uh, you should you should tell people about that book. If you want to know more about impeachment, um, you can read a book that I've written uh, that's really all about the duties of the American president. It's called The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Uh, it looks in depth at what we do when a president disrespects the oath of office to preserve and protect and defend the United States. And it looks, of course, at impeachment in depth, many of the cases that we talked about in depth, but also questions like whether or not a sitting president can be indicted uh, for criminal offenses criminally and put in prison while, uh, while still in office, or whether that has to come after removal, and how indictment relates to that process. It looks in depth at the Nixon case of uh, the, the investigation 
into criminal matters by Richard Nixon. And it looks more generally on uh, what a president has to do to avoid impeachment. Uh, so in the New York Review of Books, the book was uh, praised for uh, being what we need now, uh, uh, how to avoid impeachment book as much as it is an impeachment book. So please check it out and uh, let us know what you think. I mean, I think we're going to have another episode where we talk about it in depth, right? Absolutely. That should be at some point next month. Uh, you can, listener, you can join in with the debate on 10 American presidents. We're going on to Facebook and uh, typing in 10 American presidents and then finding our Facebook group where you'll find a, a, a good many uh, fans of American presidential history. They're talking about uh, their favourite presidents, what what they've done wrong etc and the shows of course we are also on twitter though i must admit i'm somewhat dreadful on that platform but if you typed in 10 usp you'll find us on twitter we do have a website it's 10 the numbers one zero usp.com one of the reasons why you should go there is because over on the right hand side there is a right uh, there is a red tab uh, which is called voicemail so if you have a specific question you can actually hit that tab, uh, talk into your laptop, your mobile phone, whatever, your tablet, and post a question for me, which I can put to somebody for a future show. So go on to 10usp.com uh, and you can have your right of reply if you want to refute anything that Corey's actually said in this episode, or maybe that's another one of our historians or experts have said in a previous episode. You have the right of reply by going on to 10usp. Dot com. You can email me where I'm royfield at gmail.com if you would like uh, to pose a question that way, of course, also. There you go. That's us done. We'll see you all again soon for another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of 10 American Presidents. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.